up on today's show, an interesting partnership in our province. The Enoch Cree Nation has partnered with a company to bring up surgical clinic on their land. And Platinum Jubilee continues in the UK, 70 years of Queen Elizabeth on the throne. And can you actually save money when it comes to adjusting your gas mileage? But I want to tell you about uh, or talk about uh, the situation that's developed just uh, to the, well, I guess you'd call it southwest part of our city. It's pretty pretty interesting. I think it's a it's an interesting an idea, and I want to get the details on it. Basically, it's uh, been announced that there will be an orthopedic surgery center built on the Enoch Cree Nation, just outside of um, Edmonton. It's a the Alberta government has agreed to allow this to happen, and you know we've talked so much about wait times uh, around knee and hip surgery, so this will hopefully alleviate that, but. Um, it's an interesting partnership, so let's get the details on it. We're going to chat now with Chief uh, Billy Morin um, of the Enoch Cree Nation. Chief, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hey, happy Positive Friday, Shay. Yeah, no doubt, right? Need a little positivity after that game last night. But hey, coming home. We'll see what happens. Um, this clinic, uh, just tell us, what, what's the background? I imagine this was in the works for some time before it finally came to the announcement that we had earlier this week. So uh, tell us about this clinic and the work that's been done to get to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, orthopedic six-day, six-operating room surgery clinic uh, doesn't happen overnight. So I guess I'll back up to my early years as chief. I've been chief since 2015, and this idea has been floating around the community for quite some time to address um, some systematic barriers in, in the uh, healthcare system. But fast forward to 2019, we had a willing government to walk down this road, and we that came to the table and said, we, we're willing to walk down this road in this way, which is a chartered surgical facility, um, contracting um, publicly paid surgeries out to chartered surgical facilities. So um, about two years ago, they gave a grant uh, to specific First Nations, uh, six of them across the province, to just inquire if it worked on First Nations. And Fast forward two years ago, we um, have an operating partner out of Calgary who operates in Saskatoon, Regina, um, most recently Victoria and uh, Vancouver, and uh, they became our partner. And there's no chartered surgical facility that offers orthopedics in the capital region, and we won the uh, RFP for the capital region to offer about 3,000 orthopedic surgeries. Um, like you say, it's a partnership with a company that already exists and already offers these kind of procedures in other places around the country. So in terms of the partnership, what is, is it land um, that the, the Cree Nation is bringing or, or how, how does the partnership work? How does that break down? It's, it's, a, it's a registered Alberta uh, corporation, so you can just think of it as a um, limited partnership in that regard. So Enoch Cree Nation owns the majority shares in it, okay. and they operators so it's pretty standard stuff when it comes to them having to know how the expertise uh let's humility in our culture and our language is actually a good thing and we have to show humility that i don't exactly know how to run an orthopedic surgery but what we bring is of course some of the indigenous perspectives that are not seen in the healthcare system so it's a really unique project that uh, of course is for indigenous people but for all albertans quite frankly that part is really interesting and i know you talked about that a bit at the announcement in terms of bringing culturally appropriate care what what does that mean what what kind of um, added features will this clinic offer with a nod to you know being culturally involved well you know i don't think when somebody walks into the uh, surgery actual um, operating room it's going to be all that different but what's so important about all this is pre-operative and yep. post-op and so i use the analogy um well, not an analogy, it's a real-world example of my father-in-law who had to come into the city of Edmonton and get uh, his ophthalmology um, surgery done. 
and that's a way easier um, surgery than uh, orthopedics. Um, but he has to come from high level, which is 700 kilometers away. Um, he lives and hunts in the bush his whole life. His first language is Dene and Cree. And uh, it's, it's quite frankly intimidating for him. And he faces cultural barriers to walk into the U of A and to pay for parking and to go through that maze. And, you know, hats off to our healthcare system and the healthcare profession. I'm not knocking them at all. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> felt like we had there was a there was a different alternative to all this and we had a willing partner in government and and uh, an operator to do this so when he comes here now hopefully within two years maybe he needs an orthopedic knee surgery or a hip surgery he's going to get the post-operative care in a first nations environment so we do have Dene people around we have Anishinaabe people around we have Cree people around and they're going to speak to him in Cree and Dene they're also going to offer him some of the traditional uh, healing and medicines after and beforehand, as opposed to him having to go to his community or fifty other or fifteen other communities to seek this treatment, we we think we can have a healthcare campus. So it's not just an orthopedic surgery center. This is like a healthcare system that we're building, and it's going to take about ten to fifteen years to build our own mini Indigenous AHS or Covenant Health. But that's the actual vision of it. Is not just an orthopedic surgery; it's a healthcare system. Exciting stuff. And uh, in terms of the timeline, uh, like you say, this clinic you're expecting to have open and running, what, by this time next year? Yeah, it's a pretty aggressive timeline. Yeah, it so is. Cleared, um, you know, our site is cleared. The, the the building itself is ready to be, is, is fully designed out. It's just crossing the T's and dotting the I's, which should be done in about a week. And uh, it's right across the River Cree there, uh, just, just south of the River Cree. Just south of the casino? Yes. Very cool stuff. Uh, Chief Moran, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Have a good day, Shay, and uh, go Oilers, go. Okay, good enough. Thank you, sir. Yeah. That's Chief Billy Moran of the Enoch Cree Nation. And as he said, it's, it's just, uh, it, it, it borders Edmonton. It, 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 the River Cree Casino is, is basically just slightly to the south and to the west of Edmonton. Uh, and uh, so it's it's pretty much, you can call it, within Edmonton, basically. But, um, you know, just some of the text, uh, this listener says, uh, thank God for Enoch Cree. It seems the only way to get progressive things done is through First Nations. Best healthcare countries in Europe have a choice of public and private. Um, and um, this listener says... Excellent. We need more of these types of clinics for all people, of course. I do like the idea. Now, this isn't a private option per se. What it is is a private operator, but you need to know that all of the surgeries done there will still be covered and funded publicly. It's still part of the public system. The provider is a private system, but, I mean, this is nothing new. We, we've had this kind of setup for some time in this country, right? We, we know that there are private providers that are part of the public system. So it's not like you can walk up to this clinic in Enoch and say, hey, here's 50 grand for a hip surgery. And that's not how it works. The surgeries that are done in this facility will still be covered by public funds. According to Alberta Health, the partners here are responsible for the building and the equipment costs, but the surgeries themselves still to be covered by public funds. According to the province, there's about 23,000 people in the province of Alberta right now that are waiting for orthopedic surgery, and a third of those are are knee replacements. Um, And it's expected this clinic is going to perform about 3,000 orthopedic procedures every year, which would increase the number of surgeries just in the Edmonton region alone by about 17%. So it, we know the waiting list for these types of procedures is long, has been long, and um, this kind of 
partnership hopefully will bring those down. The waiting list, the surgical waiting list, is pegged at just over 70,000 in the province of Alberta right now. That includes all kinds of surgeries, but these kinds of enterprises, um, while it's a private provider, it's a private clinic that's doing it, so they're going to have a different model. It's still within the public system in terms of it's publicly funded, right? Um, and they anticipate that the cost savings are going to be about 20% having it done this way. Um, NDP, in response, says the UCP has provided no reason why these new surgical facilities can't be built in and operated within the public system. The UCP's surgical initiative provides public dollars to help private companies profit while deliberately neglecting Alberta's public health care. The UCP's mismanagement of healthcare and neglect of the public system has caused partial closures in more than 20 hospitals in Alberta. That's the NDP response to this news. But as we said, this clinic should be up and running within a year, uh, doing about 3,000 orthopedic surgeries in the Edmonton region. As, as you heard, it's going to deal with people from right across northern Alberta. Um, private provider, publicly funded, which has been around for a while in a number of different areas. So it's not like this is something new. Uh, the partnership with uh, Enoch Cree Nation is new and pretty interesting, if you ask me. It's the 70th anniversary of uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, ascending to the throne in London. Uh, today's big um, event, I guess, if you want to call it that, is uh, there was a Thanksgiving service at St. Paul's Cathedral in London uh, this morning, and it ended with the tolling of Great Paul, the largest... All the stops this weekend, right? Everything. Everything they can do, they can do. They've had the flyover yesterday. They had the balcony appearance yesterday, which is sort of... We're going to talk a bit about what we can maybe anticipate or what we can forecast or speculate on about the future of the monarchy based on what we're seeing right now. I mean, let's face it may not be the most pleasant thought as this celebration unfolds, but the Queen is 96 years old. Her reign um, is coming to an end. She's in the twilight of her time on the throne. So what's going to happen next? What does she want to see happen? And is she starting to sort of exert a little influence and guide things in a direction that she wants? We're going to have that discussion now. We're speaking with uh, David Johnson, who's a political science professor at Cape Breton University in Nova Scotia, author of Battle Royal, Monarchists versus Republicans over the Crown, of Canada. David, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Uh, no problem. No problem. I'm glad to be here. Now, when you take a look at what's going on in the UK, and I, I keep reading about, um, you know, reading the tea leaves, so to speak, uh, mm. watching how things are playing out and trying to pick up yeah. any clues that might be there about uh, the future of the monarchy. Are you doing the same? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. We are in a period of transition. We've actually been in this period of transition for a couple of years now as the Queen is getting older and slowing down. I call this the end of the second Elizabethan era. And okay. it has been a wonderful era over the last 70 years. And it's a, it is the Platinum of Jubilee and a wonderful, wonderful celebration of 70 years of service. No one in the British monarchy, in the entire history of the British monarchy, going back 1,500 years, has served this long. So it is a tribute to the Queen. But what we do see, even today, the fact that the Queen couldn't make the church service yeah. at St. Paul's, 
And that what we do see then is her son, Charles, stepping in to represent her at the service. And they're the core four. We see that on the balcony yesterday, the core four that will take on the reins after the queen has left this this earth. Charles and Camilla, who will be queen with the queen's current queen's blessing, and then William and Kate, the Catherine, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Those four will be the future, and then their kids. That, that is the future. And then we'll see whether Harry and Meghan may, may make some comeback into the family. There's always speculation, as you say, and uh, I, let's, let's break them down a bit here. When we see the balcony appearances yesterday, Kate and Will are there, Prince Charles is there, Andrew is not, Harry and Meghan are not. So is that a message from the Queen? Okay, when we go forward, this is going to be the focus of the royal family, and these are the people that I'm sort of entrusting with the legacy that I have built up, or or am I reading too much into it? Oh, no, no, I think you're, that's a perfectly correct reading, that the balcony is reserved for the wor- working royals. Right. So Andrew, with all of the issues he's been facing, he has had to step away from work on behalf of the royal family for obvious reasons and not necessary reasons. Whether we'll ever see him back as a working royal, probably not. No. But then, so. but then, but then, at the same time, Harry and Meghan they they stepped down two years ago from royal service, so they are not working royals. But they're still, a, of course, they're still a member of the royal family. Harry is his father's son, and Harry is in the family, so they'll always be royals. They'll always have the title of Duke and Duchess of Sussex. They may come back. Okay. Yeah, it, you know, it, come to their senses, it, so to speak, and come back. <laughs> yeah, and maybe the whole family realizes what a wonderful addition they have. And I always, I was always very sad that Megan couldn't do that for what all the all the hassle that she had, especially in Britain, on behalf of her you know, race and her ethnic origins, and yeah. that the fact that it would have been wonderful. I always said at the time it was wonderful that. Harry and Meghan have married and they're having a family, and you have someone who has the blood of African slaves in her uh, as a member of the royal family. She would have done so much to to represent the royal family in places like the Caribbean and Africa. But so who knows? Maybe they. they I, I hope they can make a comeback into the family in, in due course. Now, the the events where the Queen hasn't been able to attend, um, Trooping of the Colour yesterday, um, the Uh church service today, she's had Prince Charles went down and inspected the troops for her. So um, I know there's a lot of, I mean, there's even people who say they should skip over Prince Charles. They should just go right past him to William. Uh, I I don't think that's a possibility. But is she sort of saying, no, 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 um, he is next, and here's an example of how that's going to play out and sort of reinforcing his role? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. He is stepping in to play the take on the role of the queen when she while she isn't able to. Just a, a week ago or so, he read the speech from the throne That's in right. British Parliament. The queen couldn't make that. And even earlier, since about 2015, the queen has not traveled internationally. And so Charles and Camilla are doing all of these royal tours abroad. And you'll remember, but again, 2015, 2017, Charles was the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth heads of government 
uh, recognized that Charles would be the next head of the Commonwealth upon the death of his mother. And Charles has been attending and these annual Commonwealth heads of government meetings. It used to be the Queen who would be at these, but now for the last four or five years, Charles has been doing that role. So on the international stage, he's taking on more and more of the responsibilities of the monarch. When it comes to how the monarchy plays out in Canada, it's always a debate. Personally, I like it. I like the ties to the history of it. Um, yeah. is, is, do you think places in the Commonwealth will look... The Queen is beloved. I think she is well-respected, very much admired. She's beloved. Charles, mm-hmm. not so much. If there's places where the monarchy is sort of, you know, uh, not as solid as it is in other places, could it be... Could there be a threat to the monarchy existing in some places in the Commonwealth? Could this be sort of a a departure from the way people feel about the monarchy? Yes, yes. And we've seen that already in the Caribbean. Uh, Barbados has, back last fall, late fall, Barbados dropped the monarchy from their constitution. They are now a republic. Just in in January, with that maybe ill-advised trip, of Will and Kate to the Caribbean, in Jamaica, in Bahamas, there's a Republican movement that wants to abolish the monarchy in those places. I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that a lot of these, uh, a lot of these Caribbean Commonwealth countries actually still have so part of it. the monarchy. Even a place like Jamaica, I'm surprised that over the last 50 years they still have the queen as official head of state. There's not a single African Commonwealth country, former colonies of the British Empire, not a single African country has kept the monarchy. So I'm a little surprised that some of the Caribbean countries have so far. Uh, Australia is the other place to keep an eye on. There's a strong, strong Republican movement in Australia. They've already tried once to abolish the monarchy there and failed. They may try again. I think the, the monarchy is well entrenched here in Canada, and I do not see any chance that upon the death of the Queen, even though we have a Republican movement here, I think the chances of us seeing the monarchy abolished in this country are zilch, absolute zilch. It's actually easier to abolish the monarchy in Great Britain than it is to do it here. <laughs> How so? Why do you feel that way? Because in Britain, to abolish the monarchy in Britain, all they need is an act of parliament. They just need an act of parliament to say that this is, we're going to abolish, that we're going to disestablish the monarchy. If that act of parliament passes in the House of Commons and passes in the House of Lords, the Queen or the King is duty-bound to sign their own death warrant, so to speak. Right. In, in Canada, it takes a constitutional amendment. In Canada, it, would, it, it requires unanimous consent of the federal government and parliament and all 10 provincial governments. And, oh, that'll um, never happen. Uh, we can't agree on anything. Extremely, extremely difficult. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's uh, reassuring for people like me. David, thank you so much for your insight. Great conversation. I enjoyed it. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you, sir. That is uh, David Johnson, who's a political science professor at Cape Breton University in Nova Scotia and author of Battle Royal, Monarchists versus Republicans in the Crown of Canada. Gas mileage. Can you really do anything to improve your gas mileage? We're going to find out in a moment. First, though, Lauren's been waiting a long time in Breton. Uh, Let's get him on the air before we start that. Hi, Lauren, you're on the air. Hi, Shay. Um, My favorite part of the show is uh, Shay and Sarah. (laughs) <laughs> portion. 
I really appreciate the way that you're gently grooming her into the business. When I started, I, I told Sarah that in 69, I was answering the phones for a talk show for CTV. And uh, it took me way too long to appreciate some of my uh, on-air colleagues. Like, I wasn't on-air. I was a technician. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just hope she really appreciates uh the position you know, you know what, Lauren? I mean, if you've worked in this business, you know, and I've been in this business for almost 30 years now, and every once in a while you come across people and it's just kind of like, okay, this person is ridiculously capable and talented and smart and somebody that, uh, you know, it, 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 they just stand out, and that's Sarah. So, I mean, I throw her on the air. I mean, she's 23 years old. She, she holds her own with anybody that calls. It's remarkable to watch. So, I mean, I appreciate having her here probably far more than she appreciates having me here but it you're right there's just certain people you look at them and think wow this is somebody that you should uh, sort of pay attention to you know well uh she's working with the master in the business when it's so so goodness competitive (laughs) you know she's got a wealth of experience to tap into with with you on on there i i'm just blown away at uh the chemistry between the two of you and uh Wish you both the best because I I understand what you are going through to be fresh and entertaining for three hours a day. Thanks, Lauren. I really, really appreciate the kind words. And you hit on something right at the end. I mean, you can be on air with people and there's just certain people that it, 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 it just happens. It just, it clicks, it's easy and it something comes out of it. And that's not a credit to me and that's not a credit to Sarah. That's just, there's, I mean, Bruce Springsteen talks about it with his band. When you get the people together and it's, for whatever, it just sort of, it, it, I don't know. And and then there's other people that, through no fault of their own, it doesn't work with. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I really enjoy having Sarah on the air, too. Um, and this listener says, Shay, I can't believe you let Sarah play Shivers with Ed Sheeran. There is hope. Is that what we just played, Sarah? Was Ed Sh- And she loves Ed Sheeran. Yeah, I love Ed Sheeran. <laughs> she does. He's no, my favorite. Yeah, so no, Sarah's in charge of the music. She gets to play what she wants. She has my list, she has her list, and we try and... We try and mix it in. Okay, enough about Sarah. We want to talk about gas prices. I'm getting a lot of gas prices reports uh, from a lot of you, and it, 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 they're, they're up pretty high. Uh, Northeast Calgary, $1.88.9. Uh, some of you saying you're seeing $1.85.9 uh, in Edmonton, $1.88.9 in Lethbridge. Um, so, yeah, okay, it's, it's ridiculously high, higher than it has ever, ever, ever been before. So the question is, what can you do? Because it seems like there's nothing, right? You just you pull up to the pump every week, every two weeks, every two days, whatever it is, and you just, that's it. There's nothing you can do. So let's find out. We're going to chat with Martin Wiseman, who's a chief instructor at the Alberta Motor Association. Uh, Martin, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. No problem. Good to be here. Okay, now, we all talk about gas mileage, and there's the little thing. Is there really anything you can do, or are we just sort of, that's it? you got to fill up, and it's going to last you the same? My, I get like 500 to a tank, and that's it. It's never changed. Are there things you can really do that make a difference? That is a, that is a great question. Um, and the good news is, uh, yes, there is. Uh, the good news is that safe driving tends to have the added benefit of fuel-efficient driving. And when I'm talking about safe driving, I know that's, a, uh, that's kind of a huge uh, area. But specifically, reducing your speed. Um, oh, yeah. We've, we've shown that if, if you're used to cruising at 120, uh, which we all know the maximum is 110, but 
in reality, this is this is kind of habits that some drivers are in. Sure. If you reduce your speed from 120 kilometers an hour to 100 kilometers an hour, you're 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 going to reduce your fuel economy by 20 percent. So that's that's a huge saving right there. Wow. Um, the other some of the other key points that and these are all um, techniques that uh, AMA driver education we we strongly promote. Uh, looking far ahead, you know, looking far down the road, responding to hazards. If you see a stale green traffic light, in other words, one that is potentially going to change to red, respond early. Don't don't stay on the gas pedal and then go straight to the brake pedal. Come off that gas pedal. Let the momentum of the vehicle keep driving you. Um, and and following distance as well. Uh, making sure that our following distance. We always recommend at AMA a minimum of three seconds okay. following distance. Um, so basically, you, you pick a fixed point, you pick a shadow, whatever it may be. And when the vehicle in front passes that fixed point or passes into that shadow, we start counting 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. And then we should arrive at that point any time after that. And the beauty of that is then when the vehicle in front brakes, I don't have to straight away go on the brake. I can just ease off the gas. It promotes a smooth drive, but it also gives us uh, increased fuel efficiency. Interesting. Okay, so 20%. I mean, that's you're going to notice that, Martin. I mean, that's going to make a difference to uh, the bottom line. That's, that's sizable. It is, it is crazy. I, I know when I first heard that, I looked into it a little bit more because... I was almost like, really, is that is that correct? But it it is been it's been proved. Um, you know, effectively, the faster we go, the higher our engine is revving, sure. and therefore the more fuel that we're pumping into that engine. So it it does stand to reason. It it does make sense. And of course, if we drive slower, that has to positively influence road safety, and then we can all get to where we need to go safely. Makes sense. Uh, a couple of the other ones I've heard. Tell me if there's any truth. Make sure your tires are properly inflated. Does that make any sizable difference? You are absolutely correct, Shay. Yes. Um, it's really important that we always adjust our tire pressures to the manufacturer's recommendations. Um, it's it's incredible the difference that that can make. It can increase fuel consumption uh, by 4%. I know that doesn't sound a lot, but every little helps. Yeah, that does. Um so what, what we recommend is, as an absolute bare minimum, checking tyre pressures monthly. Um, if you can check them every couple of weeks, that's even better. Uh, if you've got the capacity, check them before every journey. Make sure that they're not overinflated or underinflated because that has quite the, the influence on your, your gas mileage as well. Okay, so there's 4% there. The other one that I've heard a bunch of times, and I imagine there's some truth to it, Air conditioning. Do you know if using air conditioning makes uh, an appreciable difference to your fuel consumption? It, it does, unfortunately. Okay. Um, so if, you know, we, we all kind of, a lot of us fall into the habit of just leaving the, the AC on, even when we don't necessarily need it. So I think what we need to do is just be smart with our use of the air conditioning. Um, assess, do I need this on now? Because if we don't, then that is also going to positively influence uh, how much gas we use. Okay. So slow down a little bit. Keep your tires inflated. Avoid AC if you can. Anything else that leaps out is, hey, this might save you a few bucks? Oh, absolutely. Um, so 
some of us are kind of in a habit of being harsh with the gas pedal. Yeah. You know, when we're waiting at that red light and that red light changes to green and we push that gas pedal down quite a long way. Yep. If we get into a habit of gentle acceleration, that will also greatly uh, increase uh, our fuel efficiency. So just being being nice and smooth with the drive, which is nicer for yourself and for passengers, but it's also nicer for your pocket when you get to the pump because okay. you're definitely going to see uh, it's not going to happen overnight. And getting into these habits, it, it takes, you know, we've proved that it takes between 21 and 28 days to fall into these good habits. But if we can get into these habits, it's definitely going to help because, as you quite rightly said, Shay, um, prices across the yeah. world, it's, it's not just Alberta, um, all across the world, they've, they've gone to record levels. Well, some good advice. Hopefully people try it out. I mean, 20% and then 4% on the, I mean, that, that'll add up. That'll make a difference, but, uh, Martin. I appreciate you giving us some tips today. No problem at all. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, sir. That is Martin Wiseman. Martin is Chief Instructor at the Alberta Motor Association. 20%. Okay, now, he says take her from 120 down to 100 yeah, I mean, you're going to get yourself in some in some grief if you try and do that on on um, QE2 for sure, right? I mean, good Lord, I'll be the one yelling at you. <laughs> but I mean, even if you take it down to, to, a, to 110, I imagine that's going to make a difference. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.